I'd like to suggest an idea to you, Clay, that I pray as a Christian man you will entertain on its own fucking merits. Does it involve me talking to you? I know a podcast, Clay, that we can make in transit without moving 20 feet from Star Trek, Batman, and horror movies, people on Patreon with cash in hand. And after we cover Deadwood and you wouldn't have anything to do with me, we'd never speak again. We'd meet as strangers the rest of our fucking lives. Now you tell me what you think of that, sir. I'd like to tell you that I'm obliged to that idea, but before we start, I want you to know that I am beholden to no human concept. <laughs> Fortunately for us, our audience are going to be a bunch of limber dick cocksuckers too, so we can just get one right on over them as we talk about Deadwood, the pilot for the show, Deadwood. How are you first? Are you ready to get uh, get going with this thing? Would you take Clell up on his offer to watch Deadwood for a podcast if if he came into a, into your jail cell and offered you that choice? Yeah, sure. Why not? Yeah. It's either that. I mean, you know, as long as we don't get run off the road by the <laughs> mob of anti Deadwood watchers, I guess. <laughs> I'm not really sure where this analogy is going. I well, was when I was gonna when I was gonna read that line. I was uh, thinking about leaning into human. To imply that I was beholden to non-human cocksuckers, but I didn't. I didn't know. I didn't know what that implied about me as a person or like the world at large. So Ep- I didn't. Episode doesn't get into it. But thank you, everybody. This is our very first episode of something pretty, and we are going to be talking about the pilot for Deadwood called Deadwood. So let's get into it. You're listening to a podcast that is a lie agreed upon. Join Wes and Clay as they discuss HBO's Deadwood and tell you something pretty. All right, Clay, feel forgive me. Let's get through this opening uh, information dump that I have to get through. As yes. uh, let's remind ourselves what happened in the episode, and then we'll move into a little bit of production stuff. So this is Deadwood, the first episode of Deadwood. Directed by Walter Hild, written by David Milch. In this episode, Marshal Seth Bullock hangs a man before he can be lynched, then leaves the Montana Territory with his partner Saul Starr. While Bill Hickok arrives in Deadwood with his old friend Charlie Utter and Calamity Jane, Bullock and Starr negotiate for the rental of a lot from Al Swearingen on which to pitch their hardware tent. Al beats Trixie, one of his whores, after she kills a trick in self-defense. While Bill gets into a poker game and loses, Swearingen enlists E.B. Farnham, proprietor of the Grand Central Hotel, in a scheme to dupe East Coast dude Brom Garrett into buying a pinched-out gold claim. Garrett's wife Alma deals with the difficulties of her situation by dosing herself with laudanum. A man says a family has been killed by Indians. Hickok puts together a search party which finds a girl unconscious and hovering near death. Hickok and Bullock accuse the man who brought the news of staging the raid in order to line his own pockets. The man draws his gun, but is shot dead. All right, so this is it. We can... um, There'll be production facts sprinkled in as we go through all this stuff. But yeah, it's been a while since you watched Deadwood. Did you have any um, opening thoughts? Uh, something that surprised you or stuck out by watching the pilot this time? Um, the biggest thing that stuck out to me is that this show is holds up. It's very good. Mm. Doesn't feel um, too old, really. It's a, it's no, it doesn't. It's a little bit different. It, it, it was shot as a pilot, so it was. This was like before the era of we buy the series and you get to make all the episodes. So the the pilot is different in that it was uh, obviously shot by Walter Hill, directed by Walter Hill, who does not return after this. The plan had been to keep him on for a couple episodes, but he had uh, disagreements with Milch about things and sort of they had a friendly parting, basically, where he decided not to come back. But um, yeah, so it, 
going into the next episode, it's going to be a couple months later in terms of real life production. So mm-hmm. this stands alone a little bit. And it, we are going to notice that it looks different, which we won't be able to comment on until we get to the next couple episodes. But um, mm-hmm. it still holds up. It has uh, a little bit of awkwardness around how it looks, I think, in terms of like the first episode or something and whether or not you nail everything. And I don't, I don't, yeah. think, it, I don't think it has all the transitions down and it's not quite as... Uh, clear or maybe like seamless, I guess, and how it, it pulls itself together. But I, th- I think it holds up as an episode anyway. Yeah, I um I was very impressed as far as pilot episodes go in how it um introduces you to everyone and everything. Like once they get to de- that first scene uh, with Bullock in the jail cell is is really interesting. And then once they actually get to Deadwood, it's really slick as far as um leading you into town showing you what the town's about while also introducing you to all these characters there's a lot of characters in the show yeah and uh they did a really nice job of um bringing most all of them except for one thing kind of like i wasn't totally sure about what was going on but i'm sure we can get to it but sure but generally i thought um yeah the introductions of the world and, and the characters was was very well done yeah, they haven't um, – not everybody's in the pilot. I, I feel that they do uh, – characters are going to kind of slowly arrive over the course of the next couple episodes, and I think it's probably a smart move. Um, you know, my the thing about the characters in this one is that the probably the main ones you meet are Bullock, Star, Swearingen, Trixie, uh, Wild Bill and his crew, I think, mm-hmm. are like the major ones. There are some tertiary ones like E.B. Farnham and uh, Doc Cochran and stuff like that. But I I think those are the major characters. And what's kind of interesting about the pilot is that the characters like Bullock and Swearingen who are being set up at this point to be antagonists to each other never actually meet in the pilot. Right, right, yeah. It's I think that even there, though, they do a good job of of kind of uh, setting the stage for what is going to come based on uh, really what comes down to how each one of them reacts to the situation with the family that gets killed on out on the out on the road yeah yeah the square um, heads <laughs> a slur that has fallen off in use i think we we don't really call people square heads anymore which i guess is just uh, norwegian or i don't know if it's like a scandinavian thing or just norwegian but either way you, you call people from that area square heads. is is there a, i don't even know if there is a a, a modern slur slur for people from scandinavia so, socialists i think socialists <laughs> church burners that's right <laughs> black metal church burners um yeah yeah but it's uh um the way that they position uh their responses to that to that situation uh against each other i thought was really clever um i think oliphant is good uh he's like two clicks away from being a, too much i think but i think he's he's good i think he's uh He's not quite over the uh, "Hey everybody, I'm in a Western line," but mm-hmm. I think he's he's dangerously close to it. But over, overall, I think he's pretty good. He, I actually think he's very good in that first scene. He, he's a good place to start. We we can start with the first scene. Um, generally, for people who are kind of new to our stuff, we don't really recap episodes uh, on our podcast, so I'm not going to go. We're not going to go through this scene by scene. Um, you got to do your own homework, baby. You do. You got you got to listen to that long blurb at the start that I read and have watched the episode. But we generally don't recap, so we're going to be a little bit all over the place. But I, I think it's uh, just at the start, I'm just going to yammer on for a little bit of production facts before we get to the opening scene. So the team at the start, production-wise, is Milch, his wife, 
Jody Wirth and Liz Sarnoff are the two other writers who are on the show. AC Lyles is their historical consultant. Greg Feinberg was the co-executive producer who was assigned by HBO to rein in production because Milch is infamous for uh, running over and not being on time with uh, scripts. Janie Bryant is the costume designer. Maria Queso is the production designer at Melody Ranch. And Walter Hill was uh, hired as the director of the first couple episodes, who's a famous uh, Western and genre director uh, who did a whole bunch of movies like Ride of the High Country, Major Dundee, The Wild Bunch, Straw Dogs, The Getaway, 48 Hours, Streets of Fire, Geronimo. I Well, sorry. Uh, I think he was a producer on some of those because some of those you named off were Sam Peckinpah movies. Oh, that's what I, I probably did link that. He he was a contemporary of Peckinpah. I guess they were they were buddies or something like that. So that, yeah, that there sense. was. I forget what the over overlap was. I think uh, he either like uh, he either produced them or possibly co wrote some of them. He did co write some of them. I, I didn't write down which ones they were, but he he definitely did. Oh, he wrote the Getaway. Okay, so that's a later one. Um, yeah, I'm going to assume he was probably a producer on on the other ones because he definitely would, did not was not involved on screen with Straw Dogs. I can say that much. But. He took yeah, he took a production hand in this. He was involved in pretty much all the casting, the design work, mm-hmm. and everything of the pilot. Um, he was really sort of functioned as a, a co executive producer with Milch in a lot of ways. The, a lot of the early, a lot of the ways that the pilot is set up is due to Walter Hill. Um, there's a lot of actor feedback about working with him and working with Milch and everything like that. They say that uh, Dayton Colley, who plays um, Charlie Utter, said that Hill was not a great actor's director, didn't give clear instruction, and Milch filled everyone's heads with things but actable suggestions. <laughs> when he went so the pilot was, from an actor's perspective, people were kind of uncomfortable with how the pilot was produced. They weren't really sure of what was going on or how well they were doing. So, Yeah. Do you have a... Um do you have an opinion of Walter Hill in general? Have you seen many of his movies? No, I've only seen a couple. I don't know much about him. I think he's a bigger name than I know him as. So I don't really yeah. have like the the book that I was reading about him just says that he was like a director's a, a genre director's director of the era. He was kind of like the last of a an age of genre director. Yeah. Yeah, he was kind of like um he he was the kind of genre director that was a, a contemporary of, of uh, Sam Peckinpah or uh, the one whose name escapes me, the one who worked with Eastwood a lot. I can't remember his name. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, I never people really hold him in fairly high regard. But the movies of his that I've seen, I've never really been that uh, um, impressed by. Yeah. Uh, I've seen Forty Eight Hours. I've seen The Long Riders. I've seen The Warriors. Uh, I've seen Streets of Fire, um, and I think that might be it. Uh, Last Man Standing, I saw that one, and I don't know. He's fine, I guess. Like he's he definitely has that certain sort of seventies uh, seventies <clears throat> hard boiled yeah uh, action pre pre Schwarzenegger action movie type style um, that sort of went away once, uh, uh, budgets got bigger and effects got larger. Yeah. He might be a, um, a holdover of the age of the producers making this show sort of, I, I think that the, like he's, uh, he's probably pre my generation really of what I mm-hmm. was uh, watching and listening to, but Milch apparently really wanted him. He had to convince him to do the show, uh, took a little bit of cajoling, but eventually he, he got there. HBO demanded that Tim Oliphant, was the actor who played Bullock. It was their only actor demand that they made. Milch and Hill had never heard of him. 
<laughs> Milch was not convinced he was the right actor for Bullock. Oliphant was also not sure that the role was right for him. As prior to this, he wasn't really a straight man, le- uh, leading man in much of his stuff. He had kind of an offbeat energy. He was in Scream, as you had mentioned. Um, plays characters with like weird energy and sort of like off kilter yeah. people. I, um, up until this and, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Justified, I never really saw him as a leading man. He was always kind of like a, a secondary guy. And yeah. uh, the, the joke the joke that I believe everybody had in real life but was made famous on The Office was he's the guy who looks just like Josh Duhamel but isn't Josh Duhamel. <laughs> <clears throat> he's in Sex in the City, I think. Uh, I remember him as one of the boyfriends. Um, yeah, he's. I, I mostly know him from this and this sort of kicked him, kickstarted him into a different area. Uh, the other big actor that I'll talk about is Swearingen. Milch wanted Ed O'Neill from Married with Children to play the role. Ooh. I don't think it would have been as good, but that would have been good. It would Ed have been O'Neill interesting. A, yeah. Ed O'Neill is a fantastic actor. Uh, uh, he, he gets a little bit pigeonholed from his comedy stuff, but yeah. he's a very good actor. Yeah, Married with Children really fucked him for, for such a – he did such a good job on it that he was uh, – typecast as that for a long time but this is yeah. this was coming out in the era before breaking bad and hbo just could not see him as being swearingen uh just didn't mm. think it was going to work they didn't uh it wasn't yet established that comedic actors could branch off into serious dramatic roles like uh uh brian cranston had done in breaking bad so they said no they insisted on no so milch got a little bit upset you know who they cast after that clay who's on the uh. show but is not in this episode Powers Booth? Powers Booth, yeah. Interesting. So cast- yeah, that's, that's a, a, a lateral move across the pond, more or less, <laughs> to go from <laughs> to go right. from Powers Booth to, uh, what's his face, Ian McShane. Ian McShane. Yeah, they cast Powers Booth. Booth was actually cast, and then he got diagnosed with cancer and had oh, to go really? into, oh, to go into treatment. So they weren't able to halt production, so they had to recast him at that point, and they went... With the choice, the last two choices were Ian McShane, who won the role, who's just off of Sexy Beast at this point. That was his big hit. Mm-hmm. And Patrick Bergen, who is the bad guy in Sleeping with the Enemy. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Laura! Uh, interesting choice. Laura! So they went with uh, Ian McShane. HBO liked him. And then, yeah, just as we talked about in the introduction, the last thing to just say is that the Melody Ranch production here is that the idea was if they were picked up from the pilot to work in this set uh, that's called Melody Ranch and to have this sort of freestanding town that already exists to shoot in, to have a continuous, huge indoor-outdoor theater setup where cameras could operate in real space by following characters from one place to another. Costumes were custom-made and stored until pickup. So they wanted to exist in this town and to suit Milch's writing style to have uh, everything could be shot in a very uh, small location. So on a whim, Mm. if some scene is written where they want to do something on the fly, they can just walk down the road and actually shoot on location by not being on location. So it's interesting. Same place they shot uh, Django Unchained and some of Westworld, I guess. Yeah, Westworld was shot there. Yep. Mm. Yep. A whole bunch of, uh, obviously, like Hill-era 70 Westerns and things before that were shot there too. Mm. Very famous. So you'll recognize a lot of the places that is there. Although there probably is, as a... Bullock is riding into town. They're probably really assembling that stuff as they're going around. Those are guys, those guys are just construction workers dressed up as uh, 1876 workers or something. Just is it really? Is that what's going on? Like no, they're building the set? It seems like it is because oh, okay. all that stuff is – like I, I don't know why you wouldn't. I know that they had to build stuff that was there and it wasn't all built. So 
They probably were. Why not? Yeah, why not? So let's get into it. Clay, want to start mm. with the opening scene? I mean, did you watch the credits? I did, yes. What do you think of the credits? Let's get the credits out of the way. Credits are good. Uh, the credits are from, um, it feels like the, the era of HBO credits where that really sort of uh, pioneered where we are now with television credits, mm-hmm. um, where they were actually using their credits to kind of tell stories and set mood and stuff like the way that The Sopranos does. And uh, um, I remember when I was in college in my 4D class, which is not about time travel, it's just basically about image movement mm-hmm. um he showed us our teacher showed us the opening credit sequence from seven and he was yeah. like this is the high water mark of opening <laughs> credit sequences is the- <laughs> and so uh it, it kind of it kind of feels like a bit of uh that stuff was coming off of of what they were starting to do in movies in the 90s where their credit sequences were a little bit more um adventurous as far as storytelling and, and the stuff that they were giving you and uh, this is good it's it's a lot of impressions of the of the town where or, or of the the vibe of the the show with you know um miners washing hands and like you side know, boob clo- side boob close-ups of dirty hands on like a female hip and shit like that it's <laughs> yeah. it's pretty good it's no good. no actors in it interestingly it's there's not a single character i don't think who appears in the show that's in yeah in the opening credits yeah it was um i think they're okay I think they're like a lesser, one of the lesser ones of HBO from this era, mm-hmm. really. Yeah. Apparently, um, Milt didn't like it at all. And, and he was, whenever he was watching it, he would sort of ask anybody who was walking by, what the fuck is this horse doing <laughs> in the opening credits? Because <laughs> there is just a horse that's kind of like running through the woods and running through the town and everything like that. Um, I'm not crazy about the song either compared with like iconic songs like the Sopranos opening and stuff mm-hmm. like that. I don't, mm-hmm. it doesn't stick with me in the same way. I think, I think it's okay, but it's not my, it's not my favorite. Like I, I can't watch an episode of the Sopranos without watching the opening credits. Cause I feel it sets the mood for it so yeah. well. And this one, I am eventually going to start skipping the credits for Deadwood. Yeah, I did. I did find myself having a bit of a nostalgic response to the song just because it had been so long since I had watched the show. And I think at the time I wasn't, you know, you couldn't, I was watching it on DVD, so you couldn't really skip it. Um, and so I, I know that I went through the first season pretty quickly. So I was, that song was just kind of drilled into my head. Yeah. Yeah. Um, new, 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 new. yeah but I will, I will say, yes, it probably isn't one of the best HBO ones. Cause I mean, like, I not to not to simp for the wire here, but the op- the theme for the wire is amazing, and like that's way more iconic than the theme to Deadwood. Yeah, just a little bit more clever too. How the theme song for the wire would change depending on what the context right. of the season is that makes it appropriate right, right. and stuff like yeah. that. This is this is just you know for the podcast here itself. I, I just Google search like royalty free Western song and got that, <laughs> and it's not. I just I don't think the song here is like. It's really like someone just went out and said, I need something Western themed that I can put over these Western images. And it's it's not. Because they should have gone. I, I was going to say they should have gone full 1950s, like Blazing Saddle style intro and just had someone overdubbing like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and like whip noises and stuff. <laughs> yeah. Just spook like the, someone like the, the rawhide intro. <laughs> yeah. It's Don um, Siegel. That's his name. That's the director who worked with Clint Eastwood. Don oh, Siegel. Gotcha. Gotcha. Also director of uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the original. Oh, yes. Which features Sam Peckinpah in a small role. So all those guys knew each other. Yeah. It's a small town, Hollywood. 
you you rub my back with I'll rub big yours. dreams. That's right. <laughs> yeah, well, Deadwood was the original city of big dreams. So we can get into the opening scene with that one. You mentioned in the introduction that you didn't like the opening. Not that you didn't like it. You, uh, you mentioned some sort of uh, caution about the opening scene in our introduction episode. Yes. You seemed you were unsure of it or something. Do you, do you want to explain? Yeah. So my memory of the show, um, I think... I started watching it as something to watch while I was working. And so, which means inevitably I'm not paying a hundred percent attention to it. It's like, you know, 75%, 80%. And so the, that first scene rubbed me the wrong way and almost kind of lost me on the show because my interpret, what I, what I got from that first scene the first time around was it felt to me like it was just, kind of showing how brutal things were going to be. Yeah. You know, by by put hanging the guy and pulling him down and snapping his neck and shit. Um do you recognize that actor from our recent sorry doing our, our recent Voyager? Only only because you brought it up. It's Michael <laughs> Parks, right? Uh James Parks or something. James Parks. Yeah. Michael Parks is the father, that's yep. right. Um but this time around I liked it a lot more because I was paying close attention to it and the uh, s- subtext isn't the word, but like the the stuff the stuff going on in the actors' faces is a lot more subtle than I, I realized, and it's it's just a it's a nice way to introduce Bullock as someone who is gonna make the hard decision, but also is not gonna feel great about it um, because he recognizes the reality of what he has to do, and. My, the thing that I loved about it is that he does it while showing this uh, mob of uh, what's the word I'm looking for vigilantes. Basically. Yeah, the, the posse of vigilantes. Yeah, yeah. He goes. He basically basically makes them all feel like shit before he does it. Like yeah. it's kind of he, it's kind of him being like, "You want to kill this guy? Let me show you what killing a guy actually means." Kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I was I thought it was pretty good. I, I I really liked it. I'd like to suggest an idea to you, sir that I pray as a Christian man you will entertain on its own fucking merits. Does it involve letting you go? I know two scores, Mr. Bullock, that we could make in transit without moving 20 feet off our path. People with cash on hand. And if once we hit Deadwood and you didn't want to have anything to do with me, we'd never speak again. We would meet as strangers the rest of our fucking lives. Now, you tell me what you think of that, sir. I love the opening scene to this yeah. show. I think it's um, I think it does everything an opening scene kind of needs to do, which is that it it establishes the tone of things. Um, I think that Clell Watson has some really like gorgeous dialogue in it. Uh, the stuff that we kind of butchered at the start is just like an excellent back and forth between. Bullock and Clell Watson, who's the prisoner. Um, it has a, it basically hits on the main point of the show and it sets up everything. And, and in my opinion, like the main point of the show is this idea that uh, as the show is going to eventually start talking about, there are things that they call lies agreed upon, which is that as Bullock and everything is going off to Deadwood, which is the land of no law, there's this dividing line between 
civilization and non-civilization. And he's moving. Mm-hmm. He's going to give up his job as this lawman. He's going to go off to Deadwood and he's going to make a fortune. And he's going to go to Deadwood, which Klaus says is a place with no laws, like how, how you can just scoop gold from the streams with your bare hands and stuff like that. And where the, where the beer flows like wine and the women <laughs> flock like the salmon of Capistrano. <laughs> and they hung the Turk who invented work, like, the, like that song goes. And uh, yeah, Bullock is... It's a scene that the, the the point of it basically to me is that it shows that the lie that is agreed upon is this idea of law existing. So mm. the the thing that's going to happen is that Clell Watson is going to die. He's either going to be lynched by this mob or Bullock is going to kill him. The outcome is exactly the same, but how it gets to that point matters to the characters. Mm. Yeah. Well, what do we got here? Whoa. It's a Jew on a wagon! Yeah, right out here in the alley! I'm executing sentence now, and he's hanging under color of law. You and your partner plan on making Deadwood, Marshal. Do not try for this scaffold! That's a deal, you loudmouth cocksucker. Hey, this... Wait, this ain't right. My sister was coming in the morning. What'd you have her told? That's not enough of a drop. I'll strangle for 20 minutes. I'll help you with the drop. Now get up and say what you'd have your sister tell you. Do not dare lay that rope off of that porch! Any more gunplay gets answered. You called the law in, Samson. You don't get to call it off just because you're liquored up and popular on payday. You don't get to tell us what to do and what not to do. Because you're leaving Montana anyways. Now do not jump off of that stool, you cocksucker! Or what? You'll kill me? Well, Bullock, Bullock, before he pulls him out of the thing, he says, I'm executing sentence and this man hangs under the color of law, which is just a way of like, they're going to frequent, the show's frequently going to use the word color and shade as a way to like describe that perception of things matters. And um, it matters to these characters that Bullock does this and that there are rules around how society is supposed to function. Like no matter how, no matter how much the mob uh, is going to do exactly the same thing as what Bullock does, by the end of the scene, as you were saying, he's sort of he's shocked the mob back into recognizing like what has just actually happened in front of them. Mm, yeah. And he's secured his place as he views the law as sacrosanct in these kinds of matters and that it makes a difference that he does it and that it's a it's like a it's a story that we tell ourselves that matters in the end. Um and that's it. And I think that they establish it like really nicely. I like the scene. Um I think Chloe Watson is great. It has some. It also does the the great thing that all these modern, the, all the great dramas do to me, which is that it mixes all the emotions of real life, which is like humor, sadness, and everything together. Um, mm. You know, just they they're dealing with hanging a guy, and the uh, everyone get back. My partner slowly does whatever the fu- whatever the fuck he's doing <laughs> over there. And they, there's a Jew on a wagon. There's all, there's all these funny sort of lines going on. It, it just does a really good job of mixing all that stuff and making makes it feel real. And what's interesting about what you're saying about the uh, 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 the illusion of law and, and it mattering to, to Bullock is the show, the episode ends with Bullock standing side by side with a, with an outlaw shooting a man off a horse yes. with no yep. under no jurisdiction whatsoever. No, <laughs> so. but the, and that's the Bullock can't Bullock can't escape himself by the end of the episode. Right, right. right. Like he he is this character who 
is the sort of pent-up rage wagon who only knows how to function through this sense of order that he wants to run. Like things, things belong a certain way, according to Bullock. It was, did you have ever, do you know the Cheshire murders? Did you see that show on HBO, the documentary about it or anything? It was no. the one that happened in, Ke- in Connecticut. No. Is that about the cat with the big mouth? It's cl- and, yeah, with the invisible the invisible body with the the green yeah. mouth, which is which took, which took millions of dollars of animation money to make happen, and it's a fascinating <laughs> documentary. Who knew you could kill a person with ink and paint? <laughs> the um, the Cheshire murders. There was a home invasion in Connecticut outside of Hartford about ten years ago, where two like mm. douchebags broke into this house and held the family hostage, and then they tried to get money out of an ATM, and then they killed the family and burned the house down, and were on the run Oof. and everything, and. There was a point where the they caught the guys and they were in jail. And as they were awaiting their death row sentence, one of them tried to kill himself. Kill himself, and he was saved by medical personnel, only to be put back on death row. Right, yeah. and that's kind of the real life representation of what Bullock is doing here, which is that for some reason it's not good enough that this real life asshole can just die. It's that the state has to do it to him. You know, yeah, and we're yeah. not going to allow it to happen any other way, and that—that's what Bullock does in this opening scene. And I—I I, I know I'm jumping to the end here, but I—I <clears throat> I watched it back twice because I wasn't totally sure. But it looks like he doesn't fire at the end. I always think that Wild Bill kills the guy. Yeah, because I was—I was watching it, and you—you you very clearly see Wild Bill shoot, like you see the smoke and the fire come out of his gun. Yeah, but you do not see that come out of uh, Bullock's gun. Bullock's so gun. I don't know. I mean. I don't know if the, if that was just a, a a trick of the camera because it the shutter fell in the wrong spot or something. Yeah. Or uh, if he it's purposely doesn't shoot. Yeah. If it's intentional, I'm not sure. But yeah. I mean, I, I have no doubts. Uh, just by the even if the uh, the smoke had gone off, it seems clear to me that Bill drew first and got the shot oh, yeah, off first. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Only one one bullet hole that I can see on <laughs> Ned Mason. I think is that guy's name too. Yeah, I, I think it's a great opening scene you get to meet Saul you get to meet Byron Sampson uh it's the first use of the word cocksucker when he's <laughs> when he says don't don't come near this gallows marshal he says you got the, you got a deal you loudmouth cocksucker uh and then that's it and um Clell Watson gives a great fuck you and I also when I asked you to do the podcast said, you'll help me with my fucking podcast <laughs> and uh you you're here doing it now <laughs> Just holding on to your legs, watching <laughs> watching you die. That's what I'm doing. Who will give the letter to his Patreon listeners? Yeah. And much like I was going to say when you asked me how I was doing, I was going to not to cross-pollinate here, but I was going to say I, I'm not doing great because I feel very close to Seth Bullock because I, much in the way he gave up his star at the end of the first se- the yep. episode, I mean, scene, I lost one of my Star Trek pins today. I'm very upset about it. <laughs> well, hopefully, fell it right off some- my jacket. Don't know where it went. Hopefully, it went to somebody who will take it to know that you mean what you mean when you say it in a letter. And that it was also it was also holding my last will and testament to my chest. So, <laughs> yep, yep. And there goes Clell. And so we learned that we're off to Deadwood, and then they take off to Deadwood. So we don't need to follow the rest of the uh, the plot after that point, but. Um, Anything to stick out to you? We can start with Wild Bill. We can start with uh, Swearingen and Ellsworth. We can start with anything that happens here. There's a lot of plot to get through. I don't mm. think we need to go through too much of it, but does anything stick out about any of the characters that you wanted to get into? 
Uh, I really like Wild Bill and his whole deal. Him and Calamity Jane. Calamity Jane is a really interesting character because she, she by design is very abrasive and kind of comes off as uh, uh, kind of difficult. Yeah. But the 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 beautiful thing they do is they like they they just structure her in a way where it's so clear that she is kind of putting on an act because she's a woman in this situation so she needs to be extra tough but at the same time you see these moments of softness from her especially regarding bill because she's like clearly in love with him yeah yeah Um, do you think do you think it's love or is it just a i don't know if it's romantic yeah i don't know if it's romantic love per se yeah but uh, it is some sort of love and admiration that flusters her a bit um every now and then and causes her to act Overreact and over over uh, uh, overcorrect in in some instances. Bill has a great um, uh, deadpan line where he goes to Charlie. He goes, she likes me more than you. <laughs> after Jane is always yelling at Charlie about, oh, he says that he knows where to find her, and she said, you know, I'd like to enjoy a fucking drink. Yeah, yeah. but yeah, she's she's really interesting because she she's. I don't know if I've ever really seen a character like her in a western or really kind of anything because she. They, they the idea of the hard drinking tough female is a very well worn genre trope, but I don't know if I've ever seen one presented the way they do with with Calamity Jane, where she's she's a fucking mess, yeah, and she's a fucking mess who's clearly putting up a front. Like I, I said, in yeah, the, in yeah. the in the environment in which she operates to some extent like i'm not saying like she goes home and she takes off her hat and she's got long flowing beautiful blonde hair <laughs> right she, all the dust you know, all the like dirt just falls off of her face as soon yeah. as her head is free well, but I'm not saying that, interestingly but- like i think the, the point that backs up your point is that i don't think anyone else in the camp takes her seriously you know right exactly yeah, yeah. Hey, is it true engines killing white people that's the sewer mouth that follows hickok around why are we standing here Riding out tomorrow, daybreak. Oh, real. Tomorrow. What's your fucking rush? <laughs> I'm going now. Even with that, Bill. Even with that, Charlie. I know the road to spearfish. And I don't drink where I'm the only fucking one with balls. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like when she comes into the bar there after uh, uh, Swearingen's calmed everybody, well, uh, put out a fire that hadn't quite started He's yet. He's continued to make money. Yeah. You're right. I don't drink anywhere where I'm the only one with fucking balls. And yeah. then they all laugh at her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like she's going in there and she's reacting. She's reacting to what she's heard about this group of indians that possibly scalped a family but she's also very much like overreacting like clearly trying to be performative yeah yeah she's very performative that's the word i'm looking for performative in in the way that she reacts to it and nobody takes her seriously and you know she goes out there on the on her own and she doesn't get there till they're on their way back and it's it's uh it's a it's a really interesting character i like her yeah i like dan when she shows up at that bar and dan doherty um goes this the fucking sewer mouth that travels with <laughs> which in a show where everyone is swearing all the time to get the title of sewer mouth is a uh, i guess it, i mean it could he could just be saying that because she's a female character she's the only 
I mean, Trixie and stuff like that. She, she's a different kind of female character. It's, it's, um, she's not in the sex trade, right? And I guess like right. Deadwood, just kind of an interesting fact is that I, I guess it was like when the camp was originally started, there was only one woman for every 20 men that showed up at the camp. And oh boy. most of them were prostitutes. Uh, so Calamity Jane would have been an unusual character uh, sticking out in this regard. Same with Alma, who we meet briefly, but we don't get to see much of her in this episode. Mm. And, you know, as far as not taking her seriously goes, like the uh, it's not just the people in the bar. Like the show presents her in a way that is fairly pathetic, right? Because mm-hmm. like she is, even that instance when it comes down to going after the family that was uh, uh, murdered, she shows up late. Like every like all the the serious dudes are already on their horses and on their way. No one went together. She, Bill didn't go together. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like they didn't wake her up or whatever. Wherever she would corner, she was passed out in. And it's it's uh yeah it's they 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 position her in a way that's that's fairly pathetic right from the jump. Um, and she's clearly trying to impress Bill as as yeah. uh, um as well as everybody else, but mainly Bill. Um. When she's yeah, when, and, the, when the the wagon train is broken down at the start, and um, she goes out there and she asks Bill if she can get some whiskey, and he says, "Don't do it because I know your canvassing techniques," which is a funny yes. funny line. <laughs> and then, but she's just she's both basically walking around yelling at everybody, but everyone's ignoring her. She's just right. calling everybody a bunch of cunts as they're fixing the wagon, but no one responds to her and no one says anything. And she's mostly she is performative and mostly ignored and pathetic at the same time. And I think that. Her her break towards the end of the episode is, I always interpret her getting given the child is a like a refeminization of her at that point mm-hmm. where she has a maternal instinct that the rest of them recognize within her and she also knows is there but she tries desperately to cover up the entire time but she's given mm-hmm. um, the square head child uh, at the end to ride back into camp. And she's the one that cares about giving it, uh, giving the, the kid to doc. And she's the one that's very protective of the, the kid when she goes to the doctor. But even there, yeah. Like she can't just give the kid to the, to, to the doctor. She has to give the kid to the doctor and say like, I'm not letting you touch her by your fucking self. Yeah. Hold you know, on a minute. <laughs> yeah. I think of Brad Dorff's reaction in that scene is terrific too. He's just got He's wide so eyes. Yeah. He's amazing. Uh, <laughs> well, but yeah, the, himself. The, the way that um, she and, and Charlie and Bill interact, I, I like, I really like Charlie. I knew Charlie was not Paul Giamatti. But every time he's on screen, I'm like he, this, why didn't they? Did they? Could they not get him or something? For he's this? a poor man. Yeah, I think the actor's name is Dayton Callie, uh, who plays Charlie Otter. Uh, he's a longtime friend of David Milch and like a confidant. And judging oh, really? from the interviews and the books with him, he is not playing a character in the show. <laughs> I, he, he talks exactly like Charlie Otter does, and I think I think that he. Um, he was not really aware that he was in a Western. He's just playing himself in these scenes, but he's, he's very funny in real life. Excellent. Um, yeah. I, I, I like the dynamic between him and Bill cause they kind of have this, uh, you know, interesting, um, well, I think talking about him and Bill at the same time is kind of appropriate cause yeah. Bill is kind of existing on this, uh, legend, and and Charlie's the one who has to make sure that he has enough money to support himself. He's his manager, and, basically. Yeah, yeah. And it's uh, I, that the scene where he uh, hashes out with the the bartender, 
how much is Bill's going to get to sh- drink exclusively at the bar. And, and that is really cool. And I'm thinking like, wow, does Bill even know any of this is going on? Or is this all just Charlie scaffolding him as he just floats through the rest of his life? Yeah, and they, they set it up as that scene is sort of where as Bill is gambling, Charlie is setting up like, how much are you going to pay Bill to... Um, how much are you going to pay us to have Bill just exclusively gamble and drink at your establishment? And he says this amount. And he's like, all right, well, how much are you going to give me? And there's this implication that Charlie is sort of taking advantage of the situation and making a little bit of money for himself. But he mm-hmm. steadfast, then when he's called out on that, he gets kind of offended and says that this man has a, has a, a wife, a new wife, and I need to build something for him so that he has something out here. He's, He's genuine in his interactions, and he's not actually taking advantage of Bill. He's trying to protect him at this point and to uh, to build something, as Bill is obviously disinterested in everything at this point, yeah. except for drinking yeah. and gambling. Yeah. I, uh, I also like the detail that Bill makes sure to sit with his back to the wall so nobody can sneak up on him. Yep, yep. Like, Toodle, a, good, like a good life. outlaw. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Bill's... Um, we don't we don't learn too much about Charlie outside of that. They they kind of operate as a duo, but Bill is a man of um few words. Um he in real life he was kind of at this point in his career where he he did have this sort of legendary outlook and was basically a celebrity that made money just by appearing at places like they do in this bar. Mm. Like people would just pay for him to sort of like come around he's like, uh, like William Shatner on the convention circuit. Yes. It's a, it's an early version of the convention circuit yeah. and the bill of this Deadwood TV show is, um, he arrives pulled in, in a wagon as if he is in a hearse. He's laying down in the right, back of it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he is a man of few words who, no one, I always think a funny thing is that no one gets his jokes at all because he's so dry and still <laughs> yes. delivering. Um, like Harrison Ford. Yes, exactly. A better pilot, but um, <laughs> <laughs> and I, yeah, I think Bill is Bill is obviously he's lived a hard life. He just wants to drink and play cards. When Charlie says, "Do you want to walk around and see the rest of the camp?" He says, "No, I'm just going to stay here and I'm going to play cards." Um, and he still is threatening to other people. He's the reason that they convinced Ned Mason to go out and look for the uh, the family that was killed. It's his word that inspires that. He has that great sequence with Jack McCall, the the rat, the prairie rat who uh, gambles at the bar and seems to have it out for Bill from the start. Oh, Garrett Dillahunt. Garrett Dillahunt. Yeah, they have that great sequence where uh, the out you outdrew me scene. Yeah, he's yeah. like, tell me what, you, tell me how you outdrew me. He's uh, referring to the cards, and uh, Jack McCall is sort of making the subtle implication that he outdrew the great gunslinger uh, while Bill who and Bill makes him insist that he meant he, he was talking about cards you call my bluff Hickok I was trying to run one whoa wait on Mary I got a third eight under there three eights wins your pot oh and I absolutely did not realize that <laughs> your chips here I am thinking I'm fucking bluffing the third eight and I mistakenly outdraw the greatest gunfighter in the world. Meaning the third eight. What? Saying you outdrew me. You meant the third eight. Well, what else would I have meant? Say it. Then we'll play cards. Third eight's what I meant. 
deal. And he's up, same again. Jesus Christ, we shake hands or something? Relieve the atmosphere? I mean, how stupid do you think I am? I don't know. I just met you. Garrett Dillahunt is a really interesting actor because he's... Chameleon. Yeah, I... He's kind of weird looking. Mm-hmm. He's got a very, he's not conventionally handsome, I don't think. Um, and, and he pops up and stuff all the time, and he's always really good. Yeah. Uh, he's what he's like one of the antagonists in the, the Michael Bay movie uh, Ambulance that just came out last year. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, <laughs> I was very surprised to see him, how do I say this without spoiling anything, uh, again in this show later on. Yes. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I guess people liked him, but uh, pulled a Michael Mann a little bit there. But um, he looks good there. I I, I think that he Jack McCall is definitely intentionally made to look like a piece of shit. Uh, like he's yeah. a very ugly character. I, so he's also in um, the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, which is one of my favorite most recent westerns. Yep. And I am after watching this again, I feel like Casey Affleck must have fashioned his entire performance as robert ford mm-hmm. on garrett dillahunt in this show in this show maybe because yeah. he's so, he's so like we, strung out kind of in like a really weirdly specific kind of not quite drunk but not quite mentally deficient kind of way <laughs> <laughs> that it's, it's it's a really it's a really interesting performance yeah he he seems he seems it's <laughs> a good way he does seem mentally deficient but he's not there's they have the they have that after the uh, the uh, the conversation of awkward um, you outdrew me thing. Jack says, "Should we shake hands or something? Relieve the atmosphere? I mean, how stupid do you think I am?" And Bill just says, "I don't know. I just met you." Yeah, um, <laughs> and so it's it's that kind of he he's set up as someone with an inferiority complex. I guess would be the way to describe him. He do, he doesn't like Hickok just because he's. He's the kind of character that he's so pathetic. He needs to bring down the other people in the room to make himself yeah. feel better. Yeah. And that's what Jack McCall is at this point. Um, after that, so we talked about Bill's entourage. We can talk about the the Gem Crew, I suppose. Um, we're introduced to Swearingen and Ellsworth in the bar. Uh, Ellsworth has his uh, famous hammered flatter than flatter than hammered shit or whatever. Uh, <laughs> and no limber to cocksuckers are going to tell me what I'm doing. Just kind of restates the points of what Deadwood is, the town and what it represents, where mm-hmm. people have just come to escape the United States and they're now on illegal Indian land that apparently historically the government was US government was actually trying to keep people out of this area to preserve the Indian Treaty. Uh, but they found gold. George Custer found gold in the hills and it caused this huge gold rush to go out to the area, which is mm-hmm. where this uh, starts up now. But he has. Um, they have a great scene with each other, and that leads to Trixie shooting the John. You get Al and Trixie have their interaction, and you meet Doc for the first time, and all that stuff. So, I this is where I got a little bit confused because from that point, you get we get into this um, uh, uh, backhanded deal that Swearingen is orchestrating for this gold. Uh, yeah, a confidence game. They're pulling a con on Brom yeah. Garrett. Yeah. Um and the thing that I couldn't that I got a little confused at was is the guy who gets shot the person that he's supposed to be buying from? 
and then they bring the Irish guy in to to act as that guy or is this com- two completely different things two completely different things okay because yeah. after he gets shot the way that al was going through his coat looking for the some sort of paperwork yeah i th- i thought what what had happened was this guy was the guy uh fancy pants whose name i can't remember was supposed to meet and so now that this guy was dead they were running a game on fancy pants to but, but uh, no, they're, they're completely separate. I think they're completely separate because they've set up the con before that. I, I don't think they just okay. fall into the con that way. I think I, th- I always interpreted that as he was getting rid of any sort of like identification that he might have because mm-hmm. they're going to feed the body to the pigs to make sure that no one knows what happened there. You know, right. they're, they're okay. trying to cover up the fact that Trixie shot him. Okay, I because I the, I thought was I thought like he had the deed to the to the plot in his jacket, and so it was like now that Swearingen had it, he had control of it, and he could. I'm probably overthinking it. No, I don't think so. And then, I mean, interestingly, yeah. there, I don't think historically there could be deeds, right? Because there's no there's no law. There's there's oh, no sure. there's no yeah, American government sense. telling you what property you can own out there. So yeah. historically yeah. it was people just sort of set set up camp with a shotgun and chase people <laughs> off who came near their <laughs> bit, their bit of the river. So did you know that um gold mining I think uh has a weird uh sort of like idea in my mind. I always imagine this the, they do this sort of panhandling gold mining in the show. They sort of they do the traditional like they have a big pan and they dip it in the water with the dirt and they swirl it around and then they find gold eventually. Yeah, like like you do at uh, Storyland or something. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's not the they're not digging tunnels at this point yet. They're doing all the, the the water mining. Did you know that um they basically were just collecting literally gold dust doing that. They're, like no one ever found nuggets really. It was just you would you would slowly do it and you would build up bags of of dust powder gold dust and then you would sell that and melt it down but that's so much work i just like yeah, it's a crazy amount of work that sounds um maddening <laughs> i guess is the word i would use <laughs> well here's a good point into uh back into this show right so the gold is the reason that everyone's out there and it ties into the the theme of the show that gold is um as we talked about in the introduction gold is what the cross was going to be in Milch's original idea which is that it's the symbol that brings everybody together for things mm-hmm. and it's another one of the lies agreed upon is that gold has value you know like this is a human construction that gold is valuable in and of itself mm-hmm. um apologies to all the doomsday people who say to buy gold and not stocks or anything like that because gold is going to be worth something well that's why our money's not worth anything man that's because right we're not in a gold standard anymore well, when, yeah, when the zombie apocalypse comes along, Clay, I'm sure you're going to be looking for gold as opposed to antibiotics or food or anything of actual value. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, gold is gold is the symbol that brings the whole town together, and it's just it's funny how the character because you're you're already seeing in this land of like no structure, immediately structure appears, which is that you were just saying that the gold mining seems like it sucks. It's much better to be in a position like Swearingen where you just take the gold from the people who dig it up, right? Right. And you give yes. you give them things in, in oh, exchange. Always. I mean, yeah. that's capitalism. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah no, and that's what it is. It's already like society's already structuring itself, right? Like you, the miners are doing this labor, this sort of backbreaking labor, and then they're trading away the earn earnings that they've made for things that really don't seem like they are all that important to them, but it just perpetuates their ability to go out and get more gold, 
the next day. Yeah, I mean, the was it Ellsworth shows up with a piece of gold and he immediately hands it over for credit bar bar credit. Inform your dealers and <laughs> whores of my credit. <laughs> yeah, it's like like the the two hunks of gold that they flash in this. I was like, man, that's probably like. And I think that's why I'm thinking about it because they, they brought up a huge nugget of gold yeah, uh, in both cases. It was a just gigantic piece of gold. <laughs> it was like a, a Looney Tunes size piece of gold. Yeah. No, they were they were dealing I, and they were dealing in gold dust, which I think is um uh when when Brahm does the little confidence game, the final they do kind of a Looney Tooney thing of they pull out the two bags of money that basically have like money symbols on it yes. and slam it on the bar. Also, to fun. be fair, you do have to say it. <laughs> Anytime you say it. Who's uh Cody what is it, Cody Dustin. Dustin Rhodes. Dustin Rhodes. That's yeah. it. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. And um that's the Oldsworth scene. That's Doc Cochran. You met them. So I guess we can just get into the uh it's really the confidence game at this point is like the final plot line that's being set up. We mm-hmm. well Seth and Saul arrive and they they um they buy or rent a corner lot from Swearingen which is a nice little tie-in. They seem to be overpaying for it. Bullock isn't too happy about it. It's more about Bullock's character there where they're setting up this hardware store and Bullock is even in his new job unable to stop being like everyone has to follow the rules as Mm -hmm. as we sell our hardware goods. No one can bribe us to get in early. No one can uh, do their little soap, $5 in the soap game around us and stuff like that. So that continues as that continues. And then, um, well, I guess we meet, before we get to... um, the, the con game you meet uh reverend smith who's another important character at this point yeah yeah he i he was really good because uh he's a good lesson on how to write exposition because his performance is so weird that you don't even kind of realize that what he's doing in that scene when he shows up is having Seth and uh what's his name Saul what's the other guy's name? Saul, Saul Seth and Saul explain how they know each other yes my uh, wife and children are in Louisville, Kentucky. I'm, I'm, I'm saving to bring them out. Days I dig on the, the Foster's water ditch, and, and nights I watch folks' as goods like I'm going to do for yours. Schedule like that, Mr. Smith. Seems like you have them here in no time. And then Sabbaths I preach Christ crucified and raised from the dead. I'm from Etobicoke, Ontario. So you were born in Canada. Come to Montana when I was 17. That's when I met up with Mr. Starr. Is that so? I was born in Austria. Austria? Wonderful where people come from. Well, I was born in Austria, and I, I grew up in Chillicothe, Ohio. And, and, and then you partnered with Mr. Bullock in Montana. That's where we partnered up. The, the, the Lord is our final comfort, but it's a, it's a solace having friends. I know that from past experience. Wonderful where people come from. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, yeah, so also a European Jew who came over and they met in Montana. Bullock mm-hmm. is from Canada, interestingly. Um, and they came out here to set up shop. And the Reverend is um, one of those endearingly earnest people who makes you uncomfortable in how earnest mm. he is. He's another yeah. case of like, I'm not sure if he's mentally deficient, but he's in, he's... He basically acts like a sort of born again. Uh, he is a preacher. He is out there in Deadwood working to make enough money to bring his family out to join him. And that's why he's watching the tent for Seth and Saul. 
Oh, and I just looked him up. Uh, fans of the Rotten Horror Picture Show second string of Stephen King series might recognize him as the dopey deputy from Stephen King's Needful Things. Oh, there you go. What year did that come out? Uh, I think that was like 92-ish, 92, 94, something like that. Ray McKinnon. Is that his, <clears throat> that's his name, I think? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The, the Reverend's... Um, he, the Reverend has the Reverend is just a really good example of things that Milch does well with setting up um, characters. He has the line about um, the he says something like the Lord is our last resort, but it friends bring a certain kind of solace or something mm, like that. Yeah, and it's this awkward line, and, he, and he, he ends it sort of sadly too by saying like I know that from personal experience. As he his voice kind of trails off. Um, but he's this earnest type of character who will say things like that, and Seth and, and Saul don't know how to react to it. But it's a it's like a <laughs> profoundly interesting thing for him to say. Uh, but he he is that kind of character. There'll be more of him, obviously, as we move forward. Also in the show is Jeffrey Jones, yep. who is is a great actor, but it's such a shame he's a creep. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know the background that got dismissed. Like, did it like i don't i mean he hasn't really been in much since all that stuff happened so no, i don't i don't know how it shook shook out but. no he had to be he's he's still listed as a sex offender and recent i was just looking him up like recent problems with the law came from him not renewing his sex offender status mm. um oh he was in the movie oh, okay well, yeah it seems it seems he he took pictures with like an underage boy or something like that but i don't know yeah. i couldn't find any details about what went on but he is is um if true obviously a uh not a very particularly upstanding citizen uh, that we're dealing with but he plays uh Merrick the newspaper man who tends to embarrass himself and is one of the few male characters that doesn't swear uh, interestingly yeah and also anytime you need someone to play a character with two letters for a first name yep. you get William Sanderson who yep. in this plays EB Farnham and previously played JF Sebastian in Blade Runner Oh, they, yeah, yeah. That's his other. He, and he always, um, he reminds who me. You, who you also fans of Badass might recognize as uh, Awesome Carl from from the Batman. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a sex maneuver, the Awesome Carl. But uh, yeah, was that a recent episode or was that a while ago? No, he's the uh, he's the creator. Um, I believe he's the creator of Hardack, which is oh, like the the cyborg thing, right? Uh, replicator thing and uh his name was carl rossum and so we ended up calling him awesome carl (laughs) yep eb farnham's in this one uh good performance from william sanderson too you got the the, shakes hands uh you got some mighty clammy hands there fella uh that's apparently a another milchian thing is that the actors would frequently become uncomfortable that milch would take some they would say that Milch is very good at finding some personal flaw that they have as a real person and writing it into the show. Oh, God. And, oh, and he's, That's William, awful. William Sanderson said that Milch commented on his damp hands when they first showed, shook hands meeting, and then he wrote it in as a character beat. Oh, my God. <laughs> that's so... Oh, that's, like, mentally destructive. <laughs> damp, damp palms run in my family. Oh, that's good. Um, outside of that, I guess it's the confidence game here. Mm-hmm. So I remember I was confused by what was going on in the confidence game that they're pulling on Brom the first couple times I saw it. I wasn't sure I really tracked what was happening and 
whether or not they knew what was going on was actually going on. From Garrett of Manhattan, scourge of the Deadwood Pharaoh table. Don't think I confuse two knights holding good cards with being a pharaoh sharp. Two here, Dan. You, uh, you see a finish to that? <clears throat> did you hear Bill Hickox in town? Oh, yes, I did. Did I give you the vapors? Are you mad about something, Al? No, I'm mad about nothing. My understanding is that they're, they've been conning this guy Brom from the beginning. They know that because Brom is an idiot, he has told them how much money he has, maximum. Mm-hmm. And they are just kind of playing the game to make him bid up to the 20000 that he owns. And Al becomes upset with EB and Tim Driscoll for pushing it that hard and getting it to that point where Al doesn't want him to get to that 20000 because, as he says in a later scene... Uh, if they get all of that money, he's going to ask for more, and that's going to draw attention of the Pinkerton uh, law agency to come down so to Deadwood. The thing, okay, so the thing that I was trying to track was reopening the bidding the way that it does, where he's like, "What are you doing? You reopen the bid." That was always meant to happen, right? Yes. Okay, it was just that Farnham was supposed to tap out earlier. Yes. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, they pushed him too hard. They got too greedy with it. And and I, I think somewhat fittingly, their performance gets worse the longer it goes on, too, where <laughs> when, it, when it gets to 20, he's like, damn, I don't have that much money or something yeah. like that. So it's And, and Al's, <laughs> the look on Al's face is hysterical, too, because he just looks like he wants it to be over at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, they, my understanding is that they just push it too hard, and then Al sort of reasserts himself by not giving them any of the money at the end of it. Um Tim Driscoll has that funny scene where he kind of negotiates himself down to getting next to right. nothing. He, he pays off his previous <laughs> debts at the at the tables and then gets $20 to go off and uh, get a bit of pussy or whatever. Yeah. yeah, he was supposed to get, what, six grand or yeah, something? Yeah, he was supposed to get seven grand, I think, and he worked him down to just 20 bucks. So By not by not actually saying anything, basically. No. Just yeah. staring at him. Just got, just got nervous. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, I mean, Ian McShane is famous for his portrayal of Swearingen. What did you, you think of Swearingen in this one? Oh, he's fantastic. Like yeah. from from minute one, he's captivating to watch, and his his line delivery is a Shakespearean, basically. Like yeah. he's 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 got that uh, that classically trained swagger that can make that dialogue just sound amazing. Yeah, yeah, he's he. Sells the dialogue. Walter Hill said, everything you know need to know about the character is um, what he wears. It's a business suit without a shirt underneath, and that tells you everything you need to know about him, which is interesting. He, um, hmm. he does. He wears his dirty long johns under his sort of expensive suit. Oh, that's right. Suit. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah Al, Al is interesting. Al set up in this one fairly un, uh, unsympathetically, really. He is – I wouldn't say he's – he's not set up as like a horrible person or a like a horrible a violent super violent like you know that evil is he's just a pure evil being really he mm-hmm. has enough personality where he comes across as you're not really quite sure what to think about him which makes the scenes with like Trixie a little bit more shocking and you know the scenes where he has to remind Dan to go kill Tim Driscoll after they, they like laugh about a joke and he's like oh and don't forget to kill Tim um <laughs> And so yeah. it's it's a good balance of without him running into any of the other leads, you get a good sense of what he is and how it is. And he's very funny too. The scene where 
uh, after the posse goes off to find the Norwegian family that's been massacred, that dope fiend comes in and tells them that that's all what they went off mm-hmm. to do. He's like, mm-hmm. how many people did you tell about this? He's like, I don't know, a couple. And then he punches the other guy who brought him up, <laughs> said, why did you let him talk to that many people? It's all good stuff. I, I enjoy Al quite a bit in this. Yeah, I, um, I'm i not quite sure what this show honestly would have been without him. Yeah. Um, Ed O'Neill. Not that, it would have been Ed O'Neill. Yeah, that's true. I mean, yeah, I, I, I don't, I think it would have been good, but I don't think it would have quite the zip that it does with uh, Ian McShane playing that character. Yeah, Milch wanted him to be both uh, bigger and scarier. Which I, I think he mm. I think he must have uh, by the time that they started shooting he must have realized that that was kind of a mistake and you need Swearingen to be a little bit more light on his feet than that yeah yeah uh, I will yeah, agree. I think, oh go ahead go ahead I was just gonna say I think Swearingen needs to be somewhat relatable in order for him to really come across as as evil as he is yeah yeah and if you go too big I think it, he's just sort of a cartoon villain yes um but I think you get enough from him in this episode that you do kind of see his humanity even in that last scene when you know he's lying in bed and someone knocks on the door and he reaches for a gun mm-hmm. and then uh trixie comes in and they just kind of like cuddle or whatever but yeah it's, Although, it's a, yeah i i guess we'll we can talk about what what he what, he, what he's thinking at the end of that because i'm always a little bit unsure of what he's thinking mm. um al is yeah, Al's the, the de facto boss of the town at this point, right? Like where, where there is no law and order, it's going to be someone like Al who comes in and sort of runs everything because all the all the plots of this episode and all the money that's being made is running through Al at a certain point. Like he mm-hmm. he extracts the money from the miners who are doing the digging by giving out the, the girls and the drinks and everything like that. He is in on this con for Brahm and Alma to get their money from them. He is setting up the lot for uh, Seth and Saul to stay there, uh, so he gets sort of rent out of out of this uh, production. Um, yeah, everything goes through him, and he he's interesting. I, I guess I wouldn't I wouldn't define him. He's he's not a super smart character, but he is diligent and like relentless. I guess mm-hmm. like the first thing he yeah. asks about. Seth and Saul is how long are they looking to stay there? Like it's kind of a, a plotting type thing where he's always he's always thinking about where the threats are going to be coming from and how he can get money from some situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he, um, I think they get a lot across with his dialogue because his dialogue doesn't really tell you. Like, he's not talking about himself, but his dialogue tells you a lot about him. Yeah. Um, well, you learn he's, I, he's descended from all those cocksuckers. That's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I really like the way he, uh, the math that he runs about whether or not, about how he's going to start losing business if people start to go to help that poor yes. family. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and that plays into what I was talking about before, where you see how the, he and Bullock react conversely to the situation where uh, Bullock gets the other uh strongest gun in the town to head out and figure out what's going on that night yep. and swear engine's like well what if you just i really love the way he's like you know what i would do i would think, lay low for think the on night, it yeah get my head together <laughs> and then in the morning head out by the way drinks are on me <laughs> yeah that, that, that's my um just as a side point jody worth who's one of the writers says that the worst shot in the pilot is swearing 
is that shot where Swearingen is talking to the bar about what to do. Um, mm-hmm. He thinks it was just a mistake because Ian McShane is apparently fairly short. He just thought it was a mistake to shoot him where he's clearly the shortest man in that bar uh, from so to shoot from such a distance to expose that. Um, just thought that Swearingen needed to be bigger, but small potatoes. But I love that... Um, that monologue is fantastic. That little rant that he goes on. He's trying to convince the people to stay at the bar as opposed to going out hunting for Indians. So he's promising there's going to be a bounty on things. Um, he does this great thing of bouncing back and forth between praising the family. So he's like, you know, he's raging about the Indians and he says there's going to be bounties, no upper limit. That's all I say on the subject except the next round's on the house and God rest the souls of that poor family. Yes. Puss, pussy's half price for the next 15 minutes and they all cheer and go about their business well, I guess when it starts pissing rain in here you know who to blame huh now I know words circulate Indians kill the family on the Spearfish Road now it's not for me to tell anyone in this camp what to do much as I don't want more people getting their throats cut their scalps lifted or any other godless thing that these godless bloodthirsty heathens do or even if someone wants to ride out in darkest night but i will tell you this i'd use tonight to get myself organized right out in the morning clear-headed and starting tomorrow morning i will offer a personal 50 dollar bounty for every decapitated head of as many of these Godless heathen cocksuckers as anyone can bring in tomorrow with no upper limit. That's all I say on that subject. Sick next rounds on the house. <laughs> God rest the souls of that poor family. Amen. And pussy's half price, next 15 minutes. You know, now that you've said that Ed O'Neill was originally cast, I can't not picture it being his character from Wayne's World. <laughs> <laughs> who who has two of the best appearances in any like one scene appearances in any movie ever in the first one when he's he's the the donut store manager and he turns to the camera and he says i'd never done a crazy thing in my life before that night why is it that if a man kills another man in battle it's called heroic <laughs> yet if he kills another man in the heat of passion it's called murder <laughs> <laughs> And then in Wade's World 2, he does, they do the same gag, and he goes, people need to be entertained. They need the distraction. I wish to God that someone would be able to block out the voices in my head for five minutes, the voices that scream over and over again. Why do they come to me to die? Why do they come to me to die? <laughs> um, it's kind of tangential, but um, a British comedy peep show has this really funny scene between the two friends where they're... Um, he's like one of the they're stuck in a room and they're sort of just like making conversation one of them says he's like uh like do you think that you could um do you think that we could ever fall in love and he's like and you could make love to me and he's like well you know know, it just goes like well we could have sex but i wouldn't want you to enjoy it and he he, he responds he responds so so you you couldn't make love to me but you could rape me This is a very, very funny friendship uh, distinction. Um, After that, Dan kills Tim Driscoll. They close off that storyline. Brahm and Alma. Uh, We learned that Alma is addicted to laudanum, which is just opium and water. uh, And she's out there with Brahm. Uh, Brahm's a funny character. They call him a dude multiple times. One of my favorite favorite lines. uh, 
is, is he down there drinking it or is he sipping at it? <laughs> yeah. And he goes down and he's sipping at the whiskey and he says, are you going to see a finish to that? Which I think is a great little uh, line reading. I So it's interesting because I, I thought originally I thought that, that that line was indicative of whether or not he was having a, a good money day or a bad money day. The sipping at it or the... Yeah. Uh, I, I know it's because they think he's, you know... Yeah, they're uh, effeminate. They're making fun yeah. of his, yeah. Um, <laughs> I was trying to figure out a nice way to say that. But, yeah. um, but I thought it was like, oh, if he's throwing it back, then he... Before I remembered what the, who the character was, I thought it was just another guy out getting uh, looking for gold or something. So gotcha. I was like, oh, if he's throwing it back, he must have a bunch of money. But if he's sipping it, he probably can't afford it, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. But no, he's just, uh, they all think he's a pussy. Yeah, he's, he's a pussy. <laughs> he's just, you're going to see a finish to that? Just makes him drink uh, the drink. Yeah. I do, I do like that whole thing with him because he's uh, like, he's just such a mark. He's such a goober. Yep rich kid mark talk, his father's providing the money for them he's running yeah. out of money he needs to call father yeah you know the way that he celebrates with his wife about the deal that he made and it's like oh this guy is just she, she's too high fucked. yeah she's too high to know what's going on with him and when she sobers up she wants nothing to do with him she pretends to be asleep well he he clearly yeah. wants her to recognize his greatness as he wears his new mining outfit and goes out the door yeah even that that small detail that when he goes to leave to go to do the to go out to his new mine, the shit that he's carrying is like pristine yeah, off brand. the rack brand new <laughs> mining equipment, like yeah. the cleanest like a mining pan you could eat off of, yep. He's well he kinda, uh, compared to Ellsworth. His clothes are cleanly pressed. He's got some new suspenders yeah. and everything. Yeah. You know, he does that. He's going out to mine some he, mine in the woods in yep. the hills. But when that cart comes through, he does that thing where he like scoots back because <laughs> he doesn't want to get mud on him. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. That's that's a that's a good. It, after the the very ending when Boak and uh, Bill shoot uh, Ned Mason, I think that character's name is Ned Mason. Uh, Dan Doherty is like has to play the role of being the friend of him, and he comes out to go mining, and he gives him the new pan, and he gives him yeah. a little thumbs up, like this, this looks good. <laughs> yeah, the the Garretts are uh, a wholesale whole cloth creation of the show. They don't actually have a real life uh, analog in the show. But is there? Do you know how many of the characters are based on actual people? Yep, Dan I mean, Jordy, Johnny Burns, Swearingen are all real. So the oh, gem, really? Oh, the I didn't realize Doherty was real. Yeah, the gem crew are real. Uh, Trixie is real in the sense that all that's known is that there was a prostitute named Trixie who shot a John in Deadwood. That's all they know oh, about her. Okay. Uh, Bullock and Saul exist. Wild Bill and his crew exist. Uh, so I think that Ed uh, Nuttall, the the guy who runs the bar that Wild Bill visits and Merrick are all real. So pretty much everyone to this point is real except for the Garretts, Alma and Brom Garrett, really. Mm. So yeah, it's so I I find that stuff so fascinating. <clears throat> I that's one of the things that I came to like more, or came to fascinate me more about the Western genre, like later in life, um, is how uh mythologized so much of this stuff gets but there are real people at the like more than you would expect real people yeah at the center of it because because westerns are so uh larger than life that you would just assume okay yeah Wyatt Earp sure he existed I'm sure nobody else in the story was real it's all probably just part of the legend but then it's like no this is actually when Ike Clanton came down he was a real you know and and so to see so many people in this show who are real is 
Um, kind of surprising, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's large, it's going to veer very quickly into fiction mm-hmm. with them, sure. but uh, at least in terms of being real life characters, they they do exist at this point. And obviously their um their characterization is done more thematically to get points mm. across and stuff like that. You know, it's I just it's to get away from like the specifics of the plot and I, I think that maybe this episode of the podcast is just going to be the most plot heavy just because you have to like sort of establish where everything is sure. at this point but it's um there's just a real quality to the writing that we can probably talk about before you get to anything else like Milch writes dialogue that is just kind of gorgeous in a lot of ways yeah, um, yeah. just things flow Eight ounces of gold with twenty dollars an ounce is one hundred sixty plus ten dollars for a half ounce makes one hundred seventy total. Inform your dealers and whores of my credit and pour me a goddamn drink. Honor and a pleasure, my good man. Hundred and seventy credit, Dan, for Ellsworth. Oh, yes, sir. One seventy for Ellsworth. I'll let everybody know. Plot four: some hardware guys. First one today with this hand. And pour me another, my good man. Here comes another. Lot four, Estea. Wagon loaded with good. Now, with that limey damn accent of yours, these rumors true that you're descended from the British nobility? Descended from all them cocksuckers. Well, here's to you, your majesty. I'll tell you what. I may have fucked my life up flatter than hammered shit. But I stand here before you today beholden to no human cocksucker and working a paying fucking gold claim. And not the U.S. government saying I'm trespassing or the savage fucking red man himself or any of these limber dick cocksuckers passing themselves off as prospectors had better try and stop me. They better not try it in here. You know, we're doing Voyager right now, and this is not going to be an endless comparison to Voyager, but... In just in this pilot alone, you learn so much about the characters through their interactions with each other that is like not even largely textual or like spoken of. Like I think a good example is um when Seth and Saul are unpacking their wagon after they arrive and that, that guy is giving them a hard time about taking too long. Yeah. Seth is about that to beat guy, the shit out. You go ahead. That that guy, that actor who's in stuff all the time, he's actually uh, is in Wayne's World. He's in, he's in both no, Wayne's World. <laughs> well, this, yeah. this is clearly just a Wayne's World uh, poaching of talents yeah. is what happened. He's also in um Friends. He's the janitor in Friends. Yeah, he shows like up that. in stuff all the time. But Seth is going to go over and beat the shit out of this guy for annoying them. And then Saul mm-hmm. steps in and gives him a free good and says like on that, he promotes the business basically and gets away right, without right. violence and stuff like that. It's just, it's... um. He was very happy about getting a free place to shit. <laughs> those those things are expensive. According, they were yeah, the same price looked, as a pair of boots. It looked fancy. It was like made out of porcelain or yes, something. Very fancy stuff. I think it's it's like um, it's just it's the mark of a well written show that just small moments like that, like so much of the the writing and the character work is just so self contained, and you get a lot from very short snippets of what the characters do, and the characters are all set up so distinctly even in the pilot. Like, you you can identify what Bullock is, what Saul is, what Swearingen is, what Trixie is, what Doc is, um, Bill, and all the rest. Like, they are describable from the moment that you see them. And I feel like a lot of shows don't do that. Like, even on... Yeah. To get away from Voyager, it's like... To, the the quality of the, the writing that I enjoy is like... 
HBO's modern series to me, like starting with like the first season of The Leftovers and into these other detective shows that they do all the time now. It's like some miserable person goes back to their miserable hometown that's filled with cunts and they're alcoholics. And it's like, like there's no happiness in anything. And what I really like about Deadwood is that there's like incredibly dark moments. Like Trixie gets the shit kicked out of her. People Mm. get killed. People are getting robbed from. Um, There's all kinds of like racism and stuff going on, but there's still a like energy of life that exists in the town and there's like happiness and there's jokes and there's stuff like that. It all mixes together and makes it feel real. Yeah. There's actually um, one of my favorite moments in the show, which is, uh, it's a small moment, but I think it's an important one is, is when um, they're ready to open up their business and they walk out and like, it kind of overwhelms Bullock for a minute. Yeah. He just, he just, he just kind of goes, Hey guys, we got uh, we got some we boots. Got stuff, we got some boots to sell you. <laughs> he's not a natural salesman. He's not fitting yeah. into this new job that he's decided to go with. I mean, especially compared to the scene, I think, or the later half of the scene when the guy running the game on the soap shows up, and he's quick to pull that guy aside and be like, "You get your shit out of here, I'll fucking kill you." You know, Run like your so game he, somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, so like he's there are certain things he's very good at, and there's certain certain things. God, why can't I remember his Saul. name? It, Saul. Saul. Star. I yep. keep thinking of Martin Starr, but that's the actor. <laughs> Very different. Actually, probably would have been pretty good in that role. But um, Solomon Starr. Think about it that way. Solomon. Star. Solomon Starr. Yes. Uh, but yeah, it, it it's a it's a great illustration of of what he's good and bad at, and like to 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 give him a little bit of um, uh, vulnerability there. I think was was pretty was pretty well placed. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Saul is um, Saul's the businessman of the two, uh, Jewish, as the show is going to go into, came from Austria, um, and is the the better angel to Saul uh, to Seth, who can sort of calm him down if need be, and they they pair with each other obviously very nicely, as that's necessary for both of them, because um, Saul probably wouldn't last on his own in Deadwood mm, very long yeah. without Bullock, um, and I think that's pretty much. It any any high points you like that little point any sort of low points that you came from this I I'm never really I think the the worst there's one horrible shot in this one that always sticks out to me which is that uh, apologies to Jody Worth talking about the shooting of Swearingen and, and making him look short I always think that Trixie has the line at the very end when she's talking to Ellsworth and she says you don't have to worry about what's on my chest and then it close ups the gun oh yeah <laughs> I I really hate that 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 we know that she has the gun there that's not yeah. necessary. You didn't like how they freeze frame and then zoom in and go whoop, <laughs> and enhance, whoop, enhance. Whoop, whoop. <laughs> That's my least favorite moment in the pilot. I think it's it's a little bit. Uh, it's a directorial choice too. It's not the the writing because the writing doesn't call it out. Yeah, I I would say um, the lighting really stood out to me in this, where I liked how shadowy it was, but there were certain times where it felt they were kind of going overboard and it was starting start to turn into like a like a 40s film noir or something mm-hmm. where yeah. it was just like dan doherty just gets like light on his eyes yes, or it's something the and star it's, trek thing of just across the eyes just the the well yeah. yeah overall i thought it, it looked pretty good in that regard but there was there was a little bit of that you know uh when, when did this start early 2000s oh four oh four there was a little bit of that early two, early mid 2000s kind of uh tv filming look where it's like 
it's like blown out, but not in like a natural way. It's like a very digital kind of blowout to the to the light. They're stuff apparently and, using something called a tobacco filter in this oh, pilot okay. that they won't use going forward. I, I would assume that that just gives that sort of old timey cliche western yellowed look over mm. everything. Maybe. But yeah, I, might be I would wrong. be curious to know how much of that the look of it is messed with in post. Um, do you know if they shot it on film? It's on film, thirty-five millimeter. It is. It is on film. Okay. Huh. They will eventually. This was shot single cam. The production eventually adopts a. They always shoot on film, but they will go to multicam very quickly. To um, interesting. Mostly to keep up with the fact that the scenes are being shot so quickly that they have to get the coverage that they sure. need. There's no time yeah. to do anything else. That's uh, interesting. I mean, like, I, I guess it's early enough that it would still be shot i guess i can't decide if that's weird to me or not that they shot i think it's film. right on the cusp i think it's yeah. like for hbo they were probably shooting on film i think at this point for the um prestige of it like that's sure. what hbo would yeah. do yeah yeah but yeah i think overall it looks pretty good um i'm curious to i didn't realize that they this the look changed so much between the first two episodes so i'm yeah. interested to see how uh how different it looks in the second one it'll be brighter one I, I think you you you'll your, your comments oh, yeah. about the lighting i think are gonna go away yeah, because my memory of it, it's not it's not as moody, it, or I should say, it doesn't have as big shadows as I as I saw in this episode. I don't remember it being that 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 uh, stark. I was reading reviews. Apparently, the look of the pilot was influential in how Game of Thrones chose to shoot oh. their things, and eventually, a lot okay. of the directors are going to move from the show to Game of Thrones. Uh, you'll see that's a lot why of they had that. That's why they had that Starbucks cup on the bar. That's right. <laughs> Uh, you know, what I didn't was think funny? you'd see that, but it was—it was obviously. <laughs> it's once you see it once, it's hard to look away. Well, what's funny about that is that there wasn't there, but once they did it in Lord in uh, in Game of Thrones, they went back and they digitally added the cup from Game <laughs> of Thrones into Deadwood. You <laughs> um, can hope. I was—I was just going to say, I—I I don't know if this is complete coincidence because of there's only so many tropes i guess in westerns that you can pull from but i felt like there was a lot of tombstone in this oh really as far as you know bullock is the lawman who's going to the town in order to to leave the law behind and set up a a, a business yeah um you had uh uh garrett's wife who was addicted to laudanum sure um there's a couple other things that stood out as kind of kind of uh, reminiscent of uh, of Tombstone, and I mean, also actually, Trixie is one of the Earp wives from Tombstone. The actress is one of the wives. Yeah, the so. the act the actress. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess but, you I mean, could see that. I, I have a hard time. I understand exactly what you're saying. It's hard to reconcile the tones of the two things. Like even as I understand what you're talking about, you know. Yeah, it, I mean, it might just be like you know western tropes. It's a it's, a, it's about a town. Someone's going to come to the town. I assume to be the you know. The, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's um, obviously Tombstone happens in one self-contained thing, but it's mm-hmm. uh, it, Bullock hasn't given up on his dreams to just become a hardware store owner at this point. There hasn't been any any push to do anything, which I guess is um, you know, I, I guess that that's the primary point of this episode. Besides setting up the themes that they set up about uh, sort of like the constructs that people operate within, it's about um. Without Bullock and Swearingen meeting each other, it's about them sort of sizing each other up where you're getting a sense of Bullock is walking into this town that's run by Swearingen who is 
at the end of the episode when Trixie gets into the bed with him, I always get the impression that he is still sizing things up at that point to figure out what's what needs to be done in order to keep him. Like he's always just thinking about what needs to be done basically and without mm-hmm. meeting Seth and Saul and all that stuff it's it's him trying to uh control the situation he doesn't he doesn't want the cleaning up the the dead john he doesn't want the law brought there screwing over brom has irritated him because it doesn't want the law brought there he doesn't want to do anything that is going to bring about the change to this system that he has set up uh in deadwood and so he's kind of having to balance his desires against um the sort of like nature of the universe that's working against yeah. him as, as everyone else is coming into town. Yeah, he's not exactly careful, but what he is is thorough in in cleaning up. Or well, the other, tracks, I feel the other I people, the other characters fuck up his shit. That's true. Basically. Yeah. 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 You know, whether or not his plans are foolproof, ex- save for the fact that he's executing them with fools. Yes. Is not known. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Yep, yep. So we'll move into the next episode, which is called Deep Water, in our next episode of this podcast. So that's it. Yeah, Clay, what did you think returning to Deadwood? Uh, do you have any final thoughts about this one before we head out of here? Uh, it's great. I, uh, I'm, I'm really glad to be watching it again. It's, you know, I hate to say this because we say this all the time, but, like, we spent so much time watching... <sighs> passable television (laughs) (laughs) yeah that when we get to do something like this that is objective pretty close to objectively great um it's a it's a fairly stark comparison between the two yeah um so yeah uh uh, uh, starting my week with deadwood and ending my week with voyager is going to be a very interesting pendulum for the next few weeks and months. swing in the turn of events yeah no i i love this show i just think it's um i think it's just so well made i think that the pilot's excellent what kind of hand is your friend with a gun i don't feel qualified to say i i, I just think that it's uh it's strong character work it's just got a lot going on i just like the characters all talking to each other i think it's interesting and this is also probably you know, one of the more action-packed episodes of the series, really, just because Ned gets shot at the end, and there's a mm. town or there's a uh, caravan of slaughtered Norwegians and stuff like that. Well, you know what's interesting about it too is I actually thought it was longer. Like I, in, as I was watching it, I thought I was watching an hour and a half pilot because the it felt long. Like the episode felt very long to me. Mm-hmm. I think maybe because they're jamming so much stuff in there. There's 34 um, scenes. I counted yeah, them a out. Lot. Yeah, so it's a lot in the 55 minutes or whatever they did. And the the plot line involving the family comes very late in the episode. Yeah. And so by the time they got to that, I was like, oh, is this like the extra half an hour that they're working through? Because I, I was surprised that they introduced something like that so late into the episode. Yeah. And then... Um, we go back to Minnesota. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was I was even more surprised because that final scene that they end the episode on is very quiet, mm-hmm. and it's not it's not exactly. I mean, you, you get your whiz bang ending before when the guy gets shot in the face or whatever, but yes. it's not exactly like a a whiz bang hook to get you into the into the next episode as in a way that some other shows might do. So here's my one plot question that I wonder if there's a good answer for. 
when Ned Mason first shows up and he runs into Bullock, mm-hmm. why does he say what he saw? Mm. That's a good question. I I guess to be my my most favorable interpretation is that Bullock, when he sees Bullock, Bullock sort of like he he does the thing where they pull the jacket out of the way of their gun. Like Bullock clearly doesn't trust him from the start. Right, right. And I didn't know if he just kind of scared Bullock scared him into fessing up prematurely to what he had done. I I think this time through, I I thought that his story was the the beginnings of a trap. So I thought it was supposed to be something like, oh yeah, I saw people get murdered out there. Um, we should probably go check it out, and then like you you know jump them or whatever. But I think what it is is I think you know as as Bullock right before he shoots him at the end and he kind of runs him down, gives him the old uh, uh, psychological profile at the end. I think it's the kind of thing where he was so frazzled about what he had just done and witnessed mm-hmm. that he just says it. Gotcha. Like, you know, it just, it just kind of, it's just the first thing that comes out. Like Bullock can kind of tell something's off with this guy. And so he does the, the what's his name? Ned Mason, I think Mason. Yeah. Mason yeah. does the 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 math of a the math of a frazzled murderer in his head, and is like, well, he knows something's up. I have to say something. If I say what I if I say that I saw the thing that I just did, but I wasn't part of it, then that will be, and I blame it on the Indians, and that yeah. will that will be that'll work. Yeah, maybe it's more suspicious if he doesn't say anything, and they find the bodies later on. Yeah, something like that. Or, I mean, the, the thing that the question is though, like, was he planning on saying anything once he got to the bar, or is it because Bullock? caught him so off guard that he just blurted it out i think it's just bullock really yeah um or like because obviously he doesn't want to go back out there he might have just wanted to say it as a a way to distract his crime so he would sort of bring it up at the bar and not go back out with them or anything like that but he yeah, the, yeah. The, the worst part of his plan the thing that he's most upset about is that they make him go back out with them so yeah, yeah. or i mean maybe it's something like you know well, if I kill them and then I'm the one who calls 911, they'd never suspect that right. I was the killer, that kind of thing. Yeah. Makes me wonder because I'm playing, um, it's it's obviously a less realistic version, although, you know, they were talking about a Deadwood show. Like uh, playing Red Dead Redemption 2 always strikes me as funny because you're, you're riding through these like empty wildernesses, right? And occasionally you'll just run into somebody. And you're like, what was it actually like back in the day if you just shot somebody on the road right. and we're like, yeah. now your stuff is all mine? You know what? A, what a I think I think it was. Travel. I think it was very easy to get get away with murder back then. <laughs> and apparently, blaming it on Indians was a common trick at this. Oh, point. I, I, yeah, yeah, I have to imagine it was very common. Yes. Yeah. So um, that's it. So I guess before we go, just the final sequence. So what, what do you think about the ending, Trixie and uh, Swearingen scene? What's your take on that? Um, does she love him? It, Why is she going back? I think probably, you know, it's all she it's all she's got. I think the thing that the surprising bit of that scene is obviously that she she puts the gun on the the on the uh, on the dresser. Yeah, the most symbolic um, on his side of the bed too. Yeah, yeah, very, it's a very submissive move on her part. So it's cl- it's clear that she is at the very least subservient to him. I yep. don't know whether or not she has real emotion for him or real feelings or what, but um, you know. That, yeah. that's that's part of part of the thing that she does yeah i always wonder about Elle's feelings towards her at least in the pilot um 
he's not particularly clear about any of that. But I, I think it is that she doesn't have anywhere else to go, and um, she has to sort of be, literally be in his bed uh, to make it through. <laughs> the other the other whores are funny with one of them has lines she must do some crazy fucking to not have him kill her <laughs> uh, which, is, which is a good line well you know i i think that's part of the uh, part of the twist that they're throwing you at the end there is you've just watched him be terrible to her for the entire right. episode yeah but, and to, and to see them as close to as a, as close to affectionate as you could get from elsewhere engine probably yeah um, at the very least, what it's telling you about his character is that even with the person that he is involved with, possibly romantically, there is nothing more important to him than his bottom line. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I'd agree with that. Plus, she's a loopy cunt, as he says. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the language is very funny. Um, that's it. Thanks everybody for listening. If you enjoyed this content, you can go to patreon.com slash the Penske file. That's like our umbrella corporation that, uh, drives all the other shows that are on this. We have a Star Trek show, horror show, Batman, the animated series show, a whole bunch of stuff. So if you're new to this and you found us through searching for Deadwood podcast, thank you for listening. Patreon.com slash the Penske file is the best way to support us. And we're going to be continuing clay. We're going to get through all of these episodes one by one. We'll eventually settle into a rhythm just like the show did, and we'll be doing less plot recaps and more uh, character stuff and uh, scene analysis and stuff like that. So thanks very much, Clay, for joining me on the pilot. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to digging some gold out of them there Deadwood Hills. <laughs> yep. Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. What would, you, what would you come back and spend your gold on after a long day in the, uh, in the fields? knowing me and if i was panning gold dust it would probably just fall out of my pocket or something yeah. <laughs> on the walk back it was apparently a common problem that they were having which I, is I, that I, they I couldn't they couldn't weave like uh bags tight enough to stop all the dust from falling out yeah ironically you probably it probably all falls out but then you're still wiping it out of your ass for like a month <laughs> like you're at the beach it's gold dust just gets everywhere i do i do really wish now that someone could put together the money and the means to have Al Swearingen meet um, Daniel Plainview. Because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm imagining in my head the opening to There Will Be Blood where Daniel Plainview crawls his way back to town, but the town is Deadwood. <laughs> <laughs> and he has, to, he has to deal with Swearingen. That would be, that'd be fucking great. They better not try it in here. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We will see you next time with Deep Water.